0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, If you're visiting this morning, um, we have been doing Revelation, as Phil's already said, and uh, we're nearly at the end, so if you'd waited two more weeks, you'd have missed it. (laughs) And if you'd come next week, it'd have been all nice, apart from the bit that's not nice. (laughs) So here we are, chapters 19 and 20, uh, truth be told, if I'd had another three weeks to prepare this sermon... It would have been helpful, but I didn't. So, chapter 19, we start, are you ready? We start with a cacophony of worship. Now, I would like to do something, because I think you're all a bit kind of, uh, this morning. So, I would like everybody from David and Irene forward to stand up on my count of one. Everybody behind them on two and then everybody from Tom backwards on three and everybody else from four. And I want you to say this, hallelujah. And I want you to carry it on over the top of the other people's hallelujahs. So are you ready? Okay, and I may swap the numbers around. And I may be completely confused, but anyway, right. Are we ready? One, two. Okay, twos need a practice. Right, sit down ones, you did really well. Right. Two. Okay, you need another practice. Two. Okay, let's get it, right. One. Two. Three. Four. Two. Three. One. Four. All of you. Right. Okay, now at least you have some blood pumping through your veins, right. So we start with a cacophony of worship, a crescendo of praise, a concerto of adoration, a chorus of rejoicing, a canon of hallelujahs. It's like that variety show, isn't it? it used to be on the TV. Hallelujah. Praise God. Verses one, three, four, and 6. And you know the thing that surprised me about this? This is the first time that this word, hallelujah, features in Revelation. It's hard to believe that with all the other uh, hymns of praise that are there. Not only that, but it is the only time in the New Testament that it features I don't think I'd ever realized that before. The only time waiting till the end, waiting to this key climax moment of the whole story of history, of God's history, this word, hallelujah, praise God. God has done it. God has done it. In our original um, teaching plan, uh, Mother's Day and the Horror of Babylon fell on the same day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so we decided to rearrange. <laughs> Frankly, it's not a whole lot better, but anyway. God has done it. He has overthrown Babylon with her violence and seduction, her deception and pride. He has done it. And he has done it justly and perfectly. And now that the whore of Babylon has been overcome, the way is open for the people of God to be reunited with their king. That's what it's all about. It's all about that day when we will be reunited with our king. And so we come to this beautiful part of this chapter, verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude Like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's us, just in case you're wondering. And we are the bride and the guests, which is slightly confusing, but then what in Revelation isn't? I'm sure you can cope with that. This image of covenant and commitment has run like a thread through the whole of Scripture from the very beginning until these final chapters. The faithfulness of God to his people and their unfaithfulness and his continued faithfulness and commitment. God's marriage-like commitment to his people runs all the way through and then this is the party at the end. This is the culmination. This is the wedding feast of the Lamb of Jesus. And I want us to spend a few moments looking at what the people in John's day would have understood by this, because we don't quite get it. So this is a whistle-stop tour. Everything is a whistle-stop tour this morning. So it started like this. With the selection of the bride. The bride, and you'll need to do the adding up, people, okay? The bride was chosen by the Father of the groom or his representative for his beloved son. All right, have you heard that? Okay, second thing was the ketubah, the marriage contract, which included conditions and provisions of the proposed marriage. The groom promises to support his wife, his bride-to-be. The bride stipulates um, the content of her dowry and gives her consent. And then a payment is given for the bride, the bridal payment. A gift paid by the groom to the bride and her family, which ultimately would change her status and give her freedom. Have you heard that bit? In the new covenant, of course, the groom pays the price, his own life to change us, our status, into sons and daughters of the living God and to make us free. And then as they prepared for the betrothal, because we're not even on the wedding bit yet, as they prepared for the betrothal, it was common for the bride and groom to separately take ritual immersion as a symbol of spiritual cleansing. After all that... There was a period of betrothal, a period of sanctification, of set-apartness. The couple were set aside to prepare to enter into the covenant. Now, this betrothal was so key, Think Joseph and Mary here for a moment, that somebody couldn't just say, you know what, change my mind. I found someone else. (laughs) It needed a divorce to break that betrothal covenant that was how serious it was it wasn't just a kind of optional thing that you did for a while it was as if you were married but you weren't married kind of thing and so this ceremony took place under the huppah which was a canopy as a public expression of the commitment items of value like rings were exchanged a cup of wine was shared to seal the betrothal We'll come back to that in a minute. And a matan, a bridal gift, was given to the wife as a pledge of love um, and for the purpose of being a reminder that the groom would return. So when Jesus shared, we had communion at the first service, the Last Supper with his disciples, when they were making that commitment to each other, when he picks up the cup, he says, this cup is a new covenant covenant in my blood, he then goes on to say, I will not share it again with you until, try that again, Till I drink it with you in the kingdom of God. And they were all like, oh, yeah, I get this. And we're like, (laughs) well, I won't drink this again until I come back, until we drink it together in the kingdom of God." And he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit as a seal and pledge that he is coming back. That he is coming back. And during that time of betrothal, the groom had one or two responsibilities and obligations. I love this. The groom went off to build a home for the couple to live in, which more often than not was an extension of the father's house. Does that make anything else come to mind? John 14, Jesus says in my father's house, there's many extensions. I'm going to add a new one. And then when I've done that, I'm going to come back and get you. I never understood that. I never understood it. But Jesus is saying, we've got this commitment. We have this betrothal. One of my jobs is to go and build an extension on the house. When I've done that, I'll come back again. The other thing which I like is this, the rabbis determined that the place the bride was taken to should be better than where she already lived. Cool! I mean, it's quite good where we already live, but better would be good, and Phil gets to talk all about that next week, to describe our new extension, it's going to be good. So the timing, what about the timing? You see, it was not the groom's duty to determine the date of the celebration. But his father's, the father would determine the time for the groom to fetch the bride. And Jesus says, I don't know when it's going to be, but my father in heaven, he knows. And he'll tell me when the time's right. And during that time, the bride was to be kept ready, preparing for that day, because she didn't know when it was going to be. I mean, how stressful would that be? (laughs) Miriam, you'd freak out, wouldn't you? Like, how stressful to not know, to not be able to be organized, to not get it all lined up, because you don't know. All the time. She was being prepared. She could notice. She could notice if certain things were happening around her. She She could judge when the time was drawing near, but she had to keep watch, and she had to be ready. And after that, period of betrothal which was a period of great anticipation the marriage the marriage itself the bride would make herself ready she would do all this kind of stuff sew and prepare her wedding garments i'd fail at that <laughs> learn how to be a good wife and mother probably fell at that as well consecrate herself stay faithful can manage that right <laughs> these are all the things that the bride would do And then one day, the father of the groom would say, now's the time. Now's the time. And one of the bridegroom's party would go ahead, shouting, behold, the bridegroom comes. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. You know, a variation on a theme. Followed by the sounding of the shofar. How many trumpets have we had? How many trumpets? And they go through the streets to the bride's house and they gather her up and they say, now is the time. Now is the time for the final wedding ceremony, for the wedding feast to begin, for the marriage supper to begin. And as we get to Revelation, we haven't even got there yet, we find the culmination of all of that history, of all that Jesus has set up, that he has come back To get his bride. You know, it's not an afternoon and an evening, if you're lucky, or either. It's seven days. Seven days of food, of music, of dancing, of celebration, of joy, because the waiting is over. The waiting is over. This is the fulfillment, this is the covenant completeness. And we get to be dressed in white, clean, pure garments not of our own but that are given to us and if ever you think you're not good enough that's because you're not but then none of us are and we are all given these garments as a gift for this day blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb just in case you're not clear that's you That's you. You got an invitation. You know, this is so exciting. John gets so excited that it's the wedding supper of the Lamb and everyone's yelling hallelujah and there's thunder and lightning and goodness knows what, that he starts to worship the angel. The angel says, whoa, stop. Just getting overexcited now. Stop. John looks up and yet again he sees heaven open a couple of times only a couple that that phrase is used he is caught up into the heaven he sees heaven open and here we have the climax of the whole book and the whole of history the return of the king the return of the king the last battle the final victory in Matthew chapter 24 Jesus says there will be an increase of wickedness and then and then he will return You know, it's a fundamental belief to our faith that Jesus Christ will return. In 216 chapters of the New Testament, there are 318 references to the second coming. 23 out of the 27 books of the New Testament refer to it. It's amazing, isn't it? For every prophecy of the first coming, there are eight for the second coming. It's amazing. We don't talk about it enough, do we? Clearly. It is imminent, imminent. Now, many people have said, oh, it's, it's going to be then, and it's going to be then, and it's going to be throughout the whole of history. And we can laugh at them and say, they got that wrong, didn't they? Well, they must feel really stupid. But you know what? They believed it was imminent. They at least were on their toes. At least they were ready, looking. What about us? Have we become so complacent that we no longer believe it might be imminent? So, we don't set a date, not because we don't want to look foolish, but we don't really believe it's going to happen. By the way, the last date was 2012. I didn't notice that, did you? No. The next one, I think, is 2060. So, some of us may be around to check it out, but then it may happen before then. Are we ready? Perusia, Epiphania, apocalypsis. all those words. They just mean that Jesus is going to come back again. And the thing is, it's Jesus who's coming back. It's not an envoy or someone else or a look-alike. It's Jesus, personally. He's coming back. He is coming back physically. He is coming back to a geographical location. Now, lots of stuff points towards it being around Jerusalem. Is that symbolic? Is it literal? I'll leave you to think about that. But he's coming back somewhere, and that at least makes sense, doesn't it? He's coming back visibly. Such a contrast to his first coming, which was broadly incognito. He is coming back, and every eye will see him. Do I know how? No. Do I believe it's true? Yes, it's Jesus. Jesus transcends our physical, material worlds. He is more than all that. And even if he wasn't, we'd have the internet. <laughs> he is coming back unexpectedly, but there are signs that he is coming. He is coming back only once. It's not a second coming, oh, and then a third one or whatever. Jesus is gone. He is going to return. That's it, folks. And he is coming back purposefully to bring in his kingdom And all that that means. And so we have here. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse. Whose rider is called Faithful and True. No donkeys this time. No donkeys much of the time if you talk to Phil. A white horse. The symbol of victory. And its rider has these amazing names. Faithful and True. It's picked up to John and John 1. He is a just judge. Phil talked so well about that last week. He is a just judge. His eyes are like blazing fire, which takes us right back to chapter 1 again. His eyes are like blazing fire. This is the same Jesus, just in case we're on any doubt who's on the white horse. He has an unknown name because when we know someone's name, we have a sense of power and authority over them. There is a name that we don't know. There is mystery he is bigger and greater than us. He is, has many crowns on his head because he is the king of kings. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. The priest in the temple wore a white robe. His white robe is splattered with the blood from the sacrifices. Jesus comes in victory with his robe dipped in his own blood because he is both priest and sacrifice. His name is the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God's. And the Word came and dwelt among us. He is the Word of God, and out of His mouth comes a sword, the Word of God. It is His only weapon. It has always been. In the temptations in the desert, He defeated the devil with the Word of God. He is still defeating the devil with the Word of God. He is followed by the armies of heaven. And he is called King of kings and Lord of lords. King Jesus is returning to defeat and to destroy his enemies. And then this not very nice image, an angel standing in the sun, crying out in a voice to the birds, come and gather here. A sign of the carnage that is to come. There is the rider on the white horse and his armies versus the armies of the beast and the false prophet and the kings of the earth, and they line up. But this verse, verse 17, tells us something so, so clear. This is going to be a victory. There is no doubt. The angel is calling the birds because it's going to be a victory. It's not 50-50, It's going to be a victory. In verse 19 of chapter 19, the armies line up, ready for war. We are ready, aren't we? It parallels chapter 16 and verse 16 as well, where Jesus comes and then there's this battle of Armageddon. I'm going to take issue with my esteemed colleague here. But there is no hill in Megiddo. That is what all the commentators say. However, there is, because I have stood on it. Well, still a hill. <laughs> <laughs> Armageddon. Half Megiddo. In Zechariah 12, the plain of Megiddo. A large fortress city base on the Carmel Range, where Elijah fought. The sentinel over the Estrellon plain and the valley of Jezreel. Diagonally opposite Mount Tabor, where Deborah and Barak fought against the Canaanites. Plain to the east, Gilboa, where Saul came to his doom. Josiah, the good king who found the law, died on this field fighting the Egyptians. Jehu's chariot chase traversed this ground. On the mountain behind them, Elijah won against the prophets of Baal. This is a key location for key battles. And the battle lines are all set for a Tolkien meets Peter Jackson epic battle. We are all ready, but there is no battle. There's no battle. We're all ready, but there's no battle. Nothing happens. The beast was captured with him, the false prophet. The two of them are thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. There's no battle. There's no battle. The rest are killed by the word of God. We're going to come back to the dragon in a minute. And they're not given a burial because it's shameful to not be given a burial. There is no battle. Why? Because the battle has already been won. The battle was won at Calvary on the cross. Jesus defeated sin because he took it on himself, he defeated death. Because he died, he was in a tomb for three days, and his raised to life, forgetting. He defeated hell, because he disarmed the principalities and powers on the cross. Colossians. The battle was already won. Armageddon causes Satan to quake with fear, but it should fill us, the faithful, with hope, because it's a symbol. That means that despite the worst efforts of evil, Christ triumphs, the Lamb wins. Yeah? Right, I don't think we're going to sing many songs at the end, Feel sorry. <laughs> so, and then I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the abyss. You know, we haven't seen this key for a little bit, not since chapter 9, and he has a great chain. And I love this because... This angel holding this key and this chain, he seizes the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, or Satan, just in case we're not sure who he is. He binds him for a thousand years. He throws him in the abyss, locks it, and seals it. What I love is this. No fight, no battle. The angel just walks out, grabs the devil by the scruff of the neck, chucks him in the abyss, locks it up and says, stay there for a thousand years. There's no battle. There's no battle. It's so easy. And then we get to this bit which is just so beautiful isn't it? This period of shalom, of peace for a thousand years, this beautiful moment where all those who follow Jesus faithfully to the point of death, some who've been beheaded, we're kind of a bit familiar with that again now, aren't we? For the name of Jesus. Jesus. Some of you will have read the story I put on Facebook in the week of a Nigerian man who took his son, who was really ill, to the hospital and they said, we'll only treat him if you denounce the name of Jesus. And he said, I I can't do that. And his son died. All those people, all those people, all those who've laid their lives down over the whole of history. All those in churches today who are worshipping in fear that someone will throw a firebomb into their church or come with a machete or a gun. All those. All those who've laid their lives down for the sake of Christ, they reign. They are honoured. There is justice for them. And there is life. Because our death in this part of life is temporary. And they reign with him. And it's so beautiful. This sense of honour to those who've walked with Jesus to the very end. This period of shalom, of millennium. I've been trying to avoid this, but only many because I can't say the word really. There's lots of debate about this millennium stuff. And so we're gonna have a whistle stop tour in 20 seconds. Are you ready? Right. So there are those who are pre-millennialists. And they believe that Jesus comes back, then there's the thousand years of peace. Right? With me? Right. Then there's the post-millennialists. They believe that there's the 1,000 years of peace, and then Jesus comes back, all right? Now, there are pros and cons about these things, because if Jesus comes back, we don't need to do anything. We can just wait, and then there's the 1,000 years of, reign of peace. If we know that we have to kind of be engaged in the process of the 1,000 years of peace, we're a bit more motivated, so those people have tended to be more kingdom-focused in the world. Then there are these people, the amillennialists, millennialists And they believe that this is not literal, but symbolic. So this may be the period of time from the day of Pentecost through to the culmination of all things. Or this may be a heavenly reality. So in heaven, Jesus reigns along with all the saints who've died in the name of Christ. And they're reigning whilst we're still carrying on down here. Could be a period of history, could be part of an ongoing scenario. You know, we've seen a screen here, and a screen here, and a screen here. It could be one of the screens, whilst the other screens are still playing. So that's it. Lots of people debate these things, endlessly, 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 especially in the United States. Thankfully, we don't. That's it. And then there's this, my personal favorite, the pan-millennialist, which is this. I believe that everything will pan out okay in the end. (laughs) There is this period of time. And then after that, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. The thing that's agreed on with this bit is that everyone thinks it's really odd. Everyone. I mean, we've read a pile of commentaries this big. Everyone thinks it's really odd. So I'm not going to come to you with anything brand new on this. But there's a sense in which this little bit parallels chapter 12, 7 to 11, where there's the battle between Satan and Michael, and Michael and his angels are stronger, and Satan's thrown out of heaven down to earth. There's also a bit of a parallel with chapter 19, that battle we've just looked at, where we go, well, how come it's just the beast and the false prophet, not the dragon too? Some people think that it's some kind of literary pattern, A chiastic pattern, for those of you who are interested, where the center is the return of the king, and then what you see all around in the other chapters is the mopping up activities where everyone's defeated and sorted out, but in the center of it all is the return of the king. It calls us back to Ezekiel 37 and 38, to Gog and Magog. Hey, you know what? It doesn't really matter. There's the dragon. He is let out of his abyss. We know how easy it was to put in it, so it's not really that big a deal. He goes through the earth. He gathers those who are already followers of his. They gather around the city that God loves. And we are all ready for another battle. But the answer to this question is there is. There is no battle. There's no battle. Fire comes down from heaven and devours them. That's it. There is no battle. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. You can cheer, by the way. Where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, they will be tormented day and night forever. So we've dealt with the beast, we've dealt with the false prophet, we've dealt with the dragon, just leaves death and Hades And by the way, they get thrown in the lake of burning fire as well. So to wrap up somehow or other in another big passage which covers many other massive concepts. The next bit is we find ourselves before the great white throne and the Lord himself, the judgment seat and at this very point, it's this lovely bit. It says, earth and sky fled from his presence. I love that. It's like, earth and sky, exit stage left. Why? Because everything is corrupt, isn't it? Everything is tainted by sin. Everything needs to be renewed. And they will come back stage right next week with Phil fully restored. And everyone, all the dead... Are before him at the judgment seat, and he opens the scrolls and he reveals to each person all that they are and all that they have done. Because he knows everything, doesn't he? He knows everything about us. We are entirely vulnerable and naked before him. And there's all these scrolls, and he's judging them on the basis of what they have done. There's other stuff in the New Testament we haven't time to talk about that talks about us being judged for what we have done as well. You know, it's that thing about that Phil was talking about: trusting God, trusting His judgment, trusting His knowledge and understanding, trusting His revelation to those who seek Him. Mike, great prayer. You know, there's there's so many stories now of imams. Seeing Jesus, having the revelation of Jesus because they seek after him. You know, God judges fairly and right and justly. When he opens these scrolls, he sees what is true. And he judges on the basis of what is true. And at the end of all time, C.S. Lewis says this. And it's really, he says it in The Last Battle and it's just a beautiful picture At the end of Narnia, all the creatures parade before Aslan, and to some his face is terrible and fearful, and they depart from him into darkness. To others, the same face is love, justice, and mercy, familiar, and they go further in and further up into the new real Narnia. C.S. Lewis also spoke in The Great Divorce about two groups of people. He said, There will be those who say to God, Your will be done. And there will be those to whom God says, Your will be done. You no, know, it's so powerful. If we choose to reject and walk in a way away from God for our entire lives and we want to continue that forever, God will permit that. But at any point where we turn around to Him, He is longing, longing, longing to receive us back again. He is longing to do that. And what we want is confidence, isn't it? Because his word says that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's the confidence, isn't it? The confidence that those of us who know Jesus, those of us who love him, those of us who've laid our lives down for him, that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It doesn't say anything about an eraser being there, by the way. We can have a confidence in that. And when we were just worshiping at the beginning, because this end bit is I'll show you, it looks like that. It's complete chaos. I just felt like the message is this really, that that Jesus' bride is perfect. It's pure and perfect. And that all of this stuff at the end of Revelation is the stripping away of everything that is not perfect. So, everything that's not the bride. So everything that's not the bride. And we are the bride not because of us, but because of Jesus. He's done it all. Calvary covers it all. He's done it all. He gave us the white robes. It's not us. It's him. He's done it all. And at the end, Simon Ponserby says this, and, and I suggest if by the way, if you want to think more, read this book, and the Lamb wins its fab. All self-will has to submit to his will. That's all of us. All darkness is driven out by his light. All hatred is dissolved in his love. All sin is purged by his blazing holiness. All wrongs are righted by his justice. All mystery is disclosed in his appearing. The King Returns.